the fifth book, the book of Acts, chapter 4, page 1096 in the Church Bible. Page 1096, Acts chapter 4. And we're reading now about the life of the church, the life of those um, that was lived out together uh, in their fellowship in Christ and with one another. Acts 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands for houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And then we turn to the end of uh, chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we first of all Ananias and Sapphira who tried to imitate what others were doing but did not have the heart of others. And then we read of the apostles again being persecuted. Now Acts 5 verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they, that's the apostles, never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. <clears throat> we will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Amen. Last Lord's Day we began a short uh, series of sermons on the theme set apart to serve. And uh, we are thinking at this stage in the development of our congregation uh, about the office and the work of deacon as we find it in the New Testament. As we find it taught there and also uh, practiced there. A couple of years ago, um, I preached on the subject of eldership, and then last year we had the opportunity to elect elders, and those men are seeking to embrace that office. But we want to see that alongside the office of elder in the church, 
there is also a second office of leadership uh, which is called the diaconate or uh, the deacon. Our sermon last week was introductory and it was foundational and I don't want us to lose sight of that in these subsequent messages. And in that study last week we saw that the Greek word to serve from which we get the word deacon occurs 100 times in the New Testament. Yet on only three occasions is it used in relation to the specific office and function of deacon. And that caused us to conclude therefore that from the wider use of this word in the New Testament, both as a verb to serve and as the nouns service and servant, we saw that the specific calling of deacon arises out of that general background. And so the ministry of service um, is something to which all believers are set apart. But then within that, there are some who are set apart to lead the church and to um, act on behalf of the whole body in relation to service of particular needs within the body. In other words, every person whom Christ saves is a deacon with a small d. All church members are set apart to serve each other and the wider church using their particular gift in dependence on the grace and strength that Christ alone gives to serve. That's where we arrived at last Sabbath morning. And this morning as we continue to think about this theme, set apart to serve, we want now to look at the specific office of deacon, which emerges from this general service. And this morning, uh, we want to see the evidence in Scripture for a specific office. On what basis do I say to you that there is a specific office of deacon in the church to which we are to appoint uh, members of the church. Well, there are three passages uh, which are important and which establish this further office in the church. And they are Philippians chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Acts chapter 6, verses 1 uh, to 7. And I want to deal with them not in the order in which they appear in your order of service. This is just to keep everybody, no, it's not just to keep everybody alert this morning, but on reflection, I felt it was a better place to begin. And we want to begin with the last and make it first, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Uh, and so if you turn uh, to that uh, part of your Bible, page 1098, and we want to see now the biblical evidence for the office and work of deacon here in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 7 in the church in Palestine. In the church in Palestine. 
Now next week we're going to look at this passage in detail. And so I, I'm not so much going to uh, expound this passage this morning uh, as simply note it. And I want us to note the context here. Acts chapter 6. The opening um, six chapters, seven chapters of Acts, all focus on the church in Jerusalem. This is the, where the church was first organized. After Jesus died and after he rose again, you remember he met with his disciples in Jerusalem. In that same upper room in which they had had the Lord's Supper. And we're told that it wasn't just the eleven that were there. There were about 120 believers altogether in the church at this time. It's not a big church. Given that Christ, the Son of God, the perfect man, has laboured for three years. And there are only 120 names um, that um, Luke refers to in Acts chapter 1 uh, at the end of his ministry. But Jesus told these 11 disciples and the wider body that they were to remain in Jerusalem. That was where the church would first be established. That is where the church would first grow. And of course Jerusalem is predominantly Jewish. And so the church was going to grow first of all among the Jews. Among those who were in Jerusalem for religious feasts under the Old Testament church. And then uh, who would go out from Jerusalem and take the gospel back to the place, the town, the city, the nation from which they came. And so Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 all record growth of the church among Jews in Jerusalem. And within this church in Jerusalem, the people had very clear commitments. They were committed to the preaching of God's word. They were committed to praying together. They were committed to sharing the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, and they were committed to the fellowship, sharing with one another their faith, so that they were building each other up spiritually, but also sharing together materially, as we read there in Acts chapter 4, as there was need among any who were within the membership. And so here now in Acts chapter 6, that is the context in which um, this body of men are elected to serve. Now the word deacon is not used in this passage. But it is widely recognised to be the beginnings of and the origins of the office of deacon. Because here now in the church there is great need. Among the widows. The widows for whom the church is caring. 
And the need is so great because the number of believers has been multiplying that the apostles are stretched to breaking point to do everything that needs to be done. And they are beginning to neglect um, and not everybody's being cared for equally or so it's felt within the church. And so the twelve, verse 2, gather the disciples together and they establish the priority of the apostles and which is the ministry of prayer and the word. And then they say, let us choose seven men for this church in Jerusalem, this Jewish church, and let's appoint them over this ministry of care, this ministry of benevolence. Now this was happening around AD 33 or 34. This was happening about three, four years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So here is the first scriptural evidence for the specific office of deacon. In the church in Jerusalem, which is within the land of Palestine or Israel as we call it today. A Jewish church. And this office is established there. I want us now to move on to Philippians chapter 1. Because here's our second uh, context in which we find the office of deacon. Page 1178. And here in this passage, it is absolutely explicit. There is no doubt whatsoever. Because Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 these words. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now again we need to understand the background to this church. And if you want to uh, know the history of how this church came into being, we've got to turn back to Acts chapter 16, page 1111. And maybe you want to put your finger in that part of your Bible. And uh, it's a passage that I was talking uh, to the boys and girls about. Here now we have Paul. <clears throat> and he is going now to the Gentiles. And he is being set apart by Christ. And he is, he is gone uh, from Antioch. If you imagine this here uh, being the land of Palestine. He's gone from Antioch down here. And in an earlier missionary journey he's gone up through Asia Minor. Modern day Turkey. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, and then he moves across uh, to what is modern day Greece crosses that stretch of water there between um, Asia Minor and Greece. And this church in Philippi is uh, located in the nation of modern day Greece, ancient Macedonia. And in Acts chapter 16, 
We said there with the boys and girls how Lydia was the first person for the Lord to open her heart in this time. And then we read of another woman who had been caught up in um, all kinds of, of activity uh, that um, was to do with, with, uh, with Satan and with the devil uh, and fortune telling. And she was saved. And then in Acts chapter 16 we read of a jailer being saved. And so those individuals, they were the founding members of the church in Philippi. Uh, and there may well have been others saved during Paul's ministry there. And that was back in A.D. 51. A.D. 51, Paul's second missionary journey was when uh, he was in Philippi. And now when we turn to Philippians chapter 1, about 10 years have passed. About 10 years have passed. And by this stage, A.D. 61, Paul is in prison for the gospel. And this church at Philippi has sent him a gift to meet some need that he has. And so he writes this letter called Philippians in response. And one of the things he wants to do in the letter is to say, thank you for your gift. That you've sent to me. Um, you've continued to support me. Over the past ten years. In the work of the ministry. And as he begins to write his letter. You see Paul could picture the church. Because he had been with the church. The church had been founded under his ministry. Perhaps the church was still meeting. In the home of Lydia. And as he in his mind's eye. Pictures the church meeting there. And pictures his letter coming into the church and being read. Here's how he begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Look at who he addresses. And look at how he addresses this church. All the saints. Who are all the saints? Are these people that have died and gone to heaven? That's the way we understand the word saints today. It's the way in which uh, our mind has been framed to think because of what happens within Roman Catholicism. People are made saints. Um, by Roman Catholicism after they die. But that's not the sense in which the New Testament uses the word saints. Saints in the New Testament is are you and me and those like us. Those set apart, that's what the word means. Set apart in the gospel. Set apart from sin. Set apart to Christ. We've been called out of our sin. We've been converted. We've been saved. And so we are saints. You this morning, you are saved in Christ. You are the saints. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean these people are perfect. But it does mean 
that you're set apart to God and you're viewed as holy in his sight. And so, to all the saints, in other words, it's to all who believe in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He sees more than a gathering of believers. He sees within this gathering of believers a body of leaders. And within the body of leaders, he identifies two distinct groups. Look at what he says. To all the saints, or to all the believers, together with, together with the overseers and deacons. Now the overseers, that's another word for elder. And the elders... We know from scripture, uh, they are to pray, they're to teach, they're to give spiritual leadership to the church, they're to provide pastoral care to members. But then there are deacons here. And we're not told at this stage what their role is. That's something we will discover next time or in the future sermon. What their role is. But there is a distinct group alongside the elders. So to all the believers, together with the elders and the deacons. This is a church that is scarcely ten years old. Christ is building his church in Philippi. He has been saving people. He's been raising up elders from among them. He's been raising up deacons from among them. And to Paul and the church at Philippi. And remember this is not a Jewish church. This is now a Greek church. In Macedonia. In modern day Greece. And uh, Paul sees this structure. Or this leadership arrangement as normative. It's part and parcel of everyday church life. When his letter arrives in Philippi and it's read by the presiding elder, it won't cause shock and confusion among the members when they hear those words and deacons. They'll not look at each other and say, who is Paul thinking of? No, these people are familiar with the body of believers gathering together. And with them there are elders, and with them, and among them, from among them, there are deacons. So, Acts 6 is the church in Jerusalem, the church in Palestine, very definitely Jewish. Philippians chapter 1 is the church in Greece, southern Europe we would say today, uh, and very definitely Gentile in its makeup and its membership. Let's come then to our third passage, which is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 15, page 1192. Page 1192, 
in the church Bible. And again, <clears throat> I want you to put your finger in Acts chapter 19, page 1115 in the church Bible. For once again, it's vital that we understand the setting here. First Timothy is so called because it's written to a minister called Timothy. But it's written primarily for the benefit of the church of which he is the pastor, the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor. Take again of my hand, and the apostles were sent out from here, and they went up, and they came around into Asia Minor, uh, and then uh, they went across uh, into Greece. So here in First um, Timothy, Paul's writing now to Timothy. He's a young man who was converted um, through Paul's ministry in his hometown, and then a few years later. Paul, having heard how this young man had grown and matured in his local congregation, in his home congregation, um, asked that he would become part of his missionary team. And so he became a trainee minister under Paul. Well now, in uh, 1 Timothy, he is the minister with full responsibility. Um, He's, as it were, been pushed out from under the wings of Paul and he's now responsible with others for the well-being of the church in Ephesus. This church that is located in the city of ancient Asia Minor. So how did this church come into being? Well, if you go back to Acts 19, we learn that this church came into being um, when Paul arrived there and found some disciples. He found some men whose lives had been changed by the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, John's ministry was a ministry that called people to repentance. And these men have repented. But these men haven't understood or heard yet of all that Christ has done in, uh, in his life and ministry. And so Paul explains that to them. And these men then, about 12 of them, um, repent or, or believe in the Christ and they become the foundation members of the church in Ephesus. That happened around AD 52, we believe. And now... Here in 1 Timothy, it's about 10 years later, and Paul's writing to Timothy and the church, and again, he's in prison, just as he was when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. And there is a problem that is developing in the church in Ephesus. This new church, this church that's only about 10 years of age, there are what the Bible calls and what Paul calls false teachers. Some people who are twisting the word of God 
and they're distorting things and they have an opportunity to teach this in Ephesus and they're unsettling the members they're infiltrating the congregation and they are to some degree corrupting the leadership of the church and then alongside that there's the practical problem of the care of the widows within the congregation that he talks about later in the letter and Timothy is there to deal with these problems and to address them. And Paul in this letter gives Timothy, as it were, guidance as to how he can address these things. He speaks in the opening chapter, and again he'll come back to it in chapter 4, about the importance of Timothy's teaching. He's got to teach sound doctrine. He's got to silence those who are teaching false things. And so his preaching is going to be vital to bringing this church back onto the road that she's beginning to leave and veer from. But then also Timothy is going to have to give diligent pastoral care and Paul talks about that in chapter 5. But here now in chapter 3 Here's another, as it were, weapon in his arsenal of weapons by which Christ through men protects the church and um, brings the church back uh, if she's going astray. And what is it? It's the appointment of men, godly men, gifted men to biblical office in the church. Okay, so if there are men that are corrupting the office of elder uh, and corrupting the work of the church, then Paul says, Timothy, one of the things you need to do, verses 1 to 7, is you need to appoint other elders who are going to strengthen the spiritual life, who are going to strengthen your hand in keeping the church focused in Christ. But then look at verse 8. He goes on to talk now about the second um, um, form of leadership in the church. Deacons. And he expects Timothy to appoint deacons in the church. There probably are already deacons there. But further deacons. And these deacons, they're the men who will head up further and develop further this care of the widows that uh, is is not all that it should be. Look at what Paul writes in verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. And then he gives other qualifications and we'll come back to these uh, in our final study. And then verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife. Now do you see what's happening here? Paul's writing to a church again. That is about 10 years uh, uh, old and he's not now writing to a church or speaking to a church that is in Palestine or in Jerusalem he's not writing now to a church that is in Europe in Greece he's writing to a church that is in ancient Asia Minor modern day Turkey and in that church as in the church in Greece as happened in the church in Jerusalem he expects that there will be elders and there will be deacons. 
these two bodies serving side by side. And they are distinct. And they are different. And he wants Timothy as minister to oversee the appointment of elders in the congregation. uh, To bring about stability of doctrine and practice. And he wants Timothy to oversee the appointment uh, of deacons in the congregation. uh, To bring about development in the benevolent ministry to the widows. Again, there's no sense of shock here. Paul, what are you talking about? What are you talking about when you say and tell me, Timothy, to appoint elders and to appoint deacons? Who are the deacons? Yes, I understand the elders because I have seen you appoint those in other churches. Timothy also understood the office of deacon because he had been involved in Philippi. And these other churches. And he had seen Paul establish throughout the churches the two offices that we find in Scripture today. So what conclusions are we to draw from this brief survey of the Scriptures? Well, I think there are three conclusions that we can draw. The first one is that we see here how churches begin. Isn't that what we've seen this morning? How churches begin and how churches grow. Whether it is in Jerusalem or in Philippi or in Ephesus. We see what the church is to be made up of. The church begins, the church grows, the church consists of those whom Christ saves and their household. At the time we could see that particularly from Lydia. Her household was brought in on the basis of her faith and we've touched on that many times or a number of times before and we've seen that in scripture. And that Reminds us today. How is a church to begin today? How does a church grow today? It grows as men and women and boys and girls hear about Jesus. And come to understand that he is the saviour. And that they are sinners. And that they need to be saved. And this morning, I ask you, and I ask us to think about the fact, am I saved? Am I saved? Because that is the basis upon which we become members of the church. That is the foundation upon which the church grows. And If people are not saved in a church, it's pointless thinking about biblical offices. It's pointless thinking about the office of deacon or the office even of elder. If a church has gone so far astray that she no longer has the gospel at her heart, 
and if the people within our membership are not gospel believing, that issue needs to be resolved and addressed before biblical office is established. But then secondly, we see here, don't we, how Christians and churches are to live and operate. Notice that little phrase that we touched on earlier, how Paul addresses the believers to all the saints. And you and I, what are we to be? How are we to function in this church? Yes, it's essential and crucial that each person who joins the church can speak of their, their salvation in Christ. That's foundational. But we then have to go on to grow as saints in Christ. We can't say that I'm saved and live whatever way we like. Because the very heart of salvation is a call to be holy in our lives. And to be saints in the local congregation. To be holy in our speech. To be holy in our thoughts. To be holy in our attitudes towards one another. To be holy in our actions towards one another. That's another vital thing that comes out of this study. But then the third thing that comes out of the study and the one that uh, we're uh, focusing on particularly is how churches are led. All the saints together with elders. Men graced, men gifted, men godly who will give spiritual leadership. And deacons whom we've touched on already will give Leadership in the benevolent ministry uh, and in the caring ministry and the material ministry of the congregation. Set apart to serve. Again, we see it at two levels, don't we? The level for all of us. Set apart to serve by being holy, by being saints. And then those who are set apart to serve as elders and others as deacons in two distinct offices in the church. Amen. Our God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ the servant, Jesus Christ the deacon, the true deacon, the perfect deacon, the one who served wholeheartedly, who gave his all, the one who went about doing good, the one who lived a holy life, set apart completely and continually for you, the one who laid down his life as the ransom for the sins of the many. We thank you that it is in Christ that we are saved. It is in Christ that we become servants. It is in Christ that we are called to be holy. Because we cannot be holy of ourselves. And it is in Christ then that we seek in the church to order her affairs as he has revealed in his word. And we thank you this morning 
that we have this clear evidence in Scripture of the existence of this separate office of deacon under the oversight of the elders and how it was found in Jerusalem, the Jewish church. It was found in Philippi, the Gentile church. It was found in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, the church that was there. And so in these different cultures, these different religious settings, we find this form of leadership that Christ established. We pray, Lord God, that you would, in your grace, give us understanding of these things. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you who give gifts to your church would in your time and in your way gift this church with men who will be deacons. And we thank you for the men that you have given already to be elders. In Jesus' name, Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.